Monica Childs worked her way up on the police force in Detroit, from patrol to the vice squad to homicide. She was part of an elite team of investigators. But why'd she become a police officer? I became the police because I, don't, I didn't like the police. I didn't like, um, well, you know, during the time I grew up, you know, the police officers I always saw in my community were always male and white, over six feet tall. It was rare that a police officer talked to you like you were a human being. Everything was always confrontational. And I always saw police officers as the biggest gang in town. It's just a gang, a band of hoodlums with badges. And, you know, I always wonder, you know, did they, did they go around recruiting them like this or putting ads in the paper that you must have a bad attitude and misuse and abuse the citizens? Where did these people come from, you know? So I thought, well, okay, all police officers aren't bad. It's got to be some good one somewhere. And so she joined the force to try to change the system from inside. And on the job, she saw how police get to be the way they are, how police band together. When they make mistakes, they never admit it, she says. They cover up each other's mistakes, almost from the time they come onto the force. These people would come on with their own ideas and opinions, and then they would adapt these other people's attitudes. Every, everybody became one, like a marriage because police organizations reward people for what? They reward everybody for being the same. If you're different, you're ostracized or you have problems. Banding together, there's nothing wrong with banding together. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. That's not the problem. The problem is when you band together and you are Act in concert to lie, perpetuate a scenario that didn't happen. That's where the problem lies. And you got that one little meek person that don't want to go along, but goes along because, you know, we all put it up, we got to stick together. It's us against them. Where else do you hear that? Gangs, us against them. And that them that you refer to, us against them. I like those people out there. I like the public at large. So, whenever Monica Child started on a new job at the force, she would let everybody know how she felt about things. And it was always interesting because I'd tell them, I said, you know, I don't lie and cover up for anybody. Whatever you do, if it's wrong, and I'm asked about it, I will tell. I'm not covering for you. I'm not going to lie for you. I won't even say I didn't see it or didn't hear it. But I don't want you to lie for me, and I don't want you to cover up for me either. And that approach worked for Monica Childs for years. Until finally, in 1996, it stopped working. And her life as a cop became very difficult. Today on our program, Can You Fight City Hall If You Are City Hall?, we bring you two stories, each about somebody trying to change the system from within, trying to be principled while working in government. This is, of course, the July 4th holiday weekend, and it's a holiday about a moment of idealism that created the American government. 
Our show today is about what happens to people trying to sustain that kind of idealism today. In each story, public-minded public servants end up fighting their colleagues. It takes a toll on their lives. They get harassed. They lose their jobs. Act one, take that copper, in which an honest cop tries to do the right thing, and a suspected murderer walks free as a result. Act two, man versus money. A small-town mayor tries to keep a developer from building in his town, and it results in the kind of snowballing fiasco, by the end of which the town literally does not exist anymore. Elise Spiegel tells that story. From WBEZ Chicago and Public Radio International, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Stay with us. Act one. Take that, copper. So Monica Child's troubles began on August 20th, 1996. An 11-year-old boy was murdered the night before. And when she got to work, her commanding officer had a suspect in the crime sitting there in the office. She orders me, she orders me to take his statement. I said, take his statement? I says, um, no. I tried to get other people in the squad to do it. Nobody else would do it. Because what she did was illegal. And she was trying to involve me in something, an illegal action. It was illegal because her superior had made an improper promise to the suspect. She told him that if he confessed, he would be sent home. Which, of course, was untrue. If he confessed, he would be thrown in jail and put on trial. Monica Childs finally agreed to take his statement, and the statement of another witness. But as their day in court approached, her boss kept coming into her office, asking what she was going to say in the hearing. She came in this office. I was sitting there. She come in, and she says, I need to know what you're going to say at the walk-in hearing. I said, I'm going to tell the truth. I need to know exactly what you're going to say. I said, well, the truth of what I'm going to say, I want him to say, uh, I told you to straighten this mess out. I'm not lying for you. I told you I was going to lie for you. I'm going to tell the truth. Finally, Monica Childs called the prosecuting attorney and told him what was going on, and the suspect's statement was thrown out. He not only went free, he sued the police department over the way they treated him and won a settlement of $15,000. This man, Reginald Vines, says that he is innocent of all charges. Meanwhile, Monica Child's boss had her transferred to a job where she had no specific duties at all. Friends on the force stopped speaking to her, people she'd known for years. Police work is the kind of job where you work closely with other people, spending hours together, tracking down leads, going over the case, just in each other's company. Now this was gone. They were afraid to talk to me. They said, Monica, wait till we get outside. I'll talk to you outside because I don't want to get in the middle of this. I don't want to be seen talking to you. I said, oh, okay. All right. So uh, I wasn't angry with them. I wish I could have gotten the National Enquirer to come because I've never seen people walk without a spine. And that definitely would have been an Enquirer or a Globe story. Retaliation against whistleblowers is so common that a Washington, D.C. group that tries to help government employees in this situation, the Government Accountability Project, put out a handbook warning potential whistleblowers that typically they can expect any and all of the following. Character attacks, threats, isolation, public humiliation, prosecution on trumped-up charges, the elimination of their jobs, blacklisting, even physical assaults. Child sued the police department. 
the local press picked up the story, and in the midst of all this, she got a phone call. Hey, Miss Childs, how you doing? I said, who is this? Oh, this is Eric. You don't remember me? Oh, uh, no. The guy turned out to be a murderer who Monica Childs had caught. I go, okay. I said, well, where are you? I'm in prison. Remember, I got life. I said, oh, okay, what you want? He says, we've been reading about all this trouble and all these problems that this police department trying to cause you. Me and some friends up here in prison that know you, you were their detective too. I say, I was their detective? I thought you were entitled to have your own lawyer. I didn't know you had your own detective. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's about 12 or 13 of us. We were sitting around. And if you need us to come and be uh, character witnesses for you, you rid us out and we'll come down here because you was cool with us. When we went to trial, you didn't lie on us. You didn't add nothing to it. I mean, like most of us doing life, we got big time. But we was wrong. But, you know, I just appreciated the way you got me. And, you know, you didn't lie. And I'm like, okay, I'm already depressed. I'm already feeling bad. When I got off the phone... I was crying. I felt so bad. I'm like, this is my help? 13 killers? People with no credibility? They gonna help me? In the end, Monica Childs won her suit against the police department. And finally, sick of the whole thing, she retired from the force. The trouble with doing the right thing, of course, is that often it is not clear what the right thing is. And just as often, doing the right thing has unintended consequences. Monica Childs worries sometimes about the testimony that got thrown out because she put her foot down. It turns out that that testimony might have cleared another suspect in the crime, a man named Eddie James, who eventually was sentenced to 70 to 150 years for the murder. And it just bothers me, and it'll probably bother me till I die, to know that one innocent man is in prison. And it was like, damn, how could this happen? And I almost wish I hadn't said anything, but then it would have been remiss of me not to, to, to know the truth and not tell it. You know, I did the right thing, but he still got hurt. Monica Childs. She spoke with reporter John Bowe, who interviewed her for a book called Gig, about people in all sorts of jobs. Well, you may run on for a long time. Run on for a long time. Run on for a long time. Let me tell you, God Almighty's gonna cook you down. Go tell that long-time liar. Act 2, Money versus Man. 
Let's move now from big city Detroit to small town Texas for a story where the bad guys aren't murderers. They're real estate developers. And maybe not so bad. They are just doing what God intended for real estate developers to do, which is, of course, come into town, throw around a lot of money, get people all excited. In this case, it caused a series of events which cascaded out of control, one after another, until by the end, even the people involved all seemed sort of amazed at how far it went. And in the midst of this, there was yet another person, a government official, trying to do the right thing as he saw it, no matter what. Elise Spiegel tells the story. When Scott Bradley moved to Westlake, there were fewer than 10 roads, and several of those were unpaved. This was the 70s, and at the time, this level of development wasn't unusual for the area. It was country, low hills and long grass, and not much else. Which is why Scott Bradley moved to Westlake. Which is why most people moved to Westlake. They wanted a rural life in a rural place, a short commute from the city. Fort Worth, Texas, was only 30 minutes away. But then the city grew. By the mid-80s, suburban sprawl had overtaken most of Westlake's neighbors. There were 7-Elevens, Home Depots, miles of subdivisions, and all the other clutter you find in any town in any place in America, but not in Westlake. The people in Westlake wanted something different. By 1994, when Scott Bradley became mayor, there was still no real commercial development in town. The town government wouldn't permit it. I mean, they knew they couldn't stave off suburban sprawl forever, but everyone, the townspeople, the town council, and especially Mayor Bradley agreed. They at least wanted to try. The story begins in 1993, when one of the properties in Westlake, a 2,500-acre ranch called the Circle T, appears on the auction block. This property, which, by the way, was the single largest piece of land in town and probably the most beautiful undeveloped stretch of real estate within a half-hour commute of the Fort Worth Metroplex, then attracts the attention of Ross Perot Jr., son of the former presidential candidate, a high-powered real estate developer who was quoted in the papers saying that for him, business was about more than win or lose. It was about win or die. So, Ross Jr. buys the Circle T Ranch. And then a couple years later, after a lot of thought and planning and minimal contact with Westlake's town government, he and his company, the Hillwood Corporation, finally present their plans for the development of the Circle T to the citizens of Westlake, all 250 of them. David Brown is a Westlake resident who attended the meeting. Hillwood Development, which is Mr. Perot's company, had a meeting over here in Solana at, at a big meeting hall, and they had pictures, drawings of a beautiful little town that they were going to build. It showed little two-story buildings in the downtown area, and it showed it, it showed a very pleasant and, and not-too-crowded place, and we were all delighted by when we saw the drawings. But when you read the accompanying 300-page document, <laughs> you found that it, it, it looked like it was going to be 50,000 people crammed in here. The accompanying 300-page document, written in convoluted legal speak, basically gave Perot and his company, the Hillwood Corporation, infinite flexibility to do with the town of Westlake as they pleased. The fine print included plans for a regional shopping mall, upscale home apartments, an office park, a golf course, zoning for a sports arena, and more. Three billion dollars worth of commercial and residential development, with enough room for an additional 50 to 80,000 people. Now keep in mind that this is the kind of community where a visiting reporter, me for instance, could sit through a city council meeting where a full 40 minutes of heated debate centered on the question of whether the new town sidewalks should be raised half an inch 
or feathered to the ground so as not to disturb the natural line of the landscape. So predictably, once the residents of Westlake learned the details, they were profoundly disturbed and alarmed. The meeting room was hot, some say close to 100 degrees, but every townsperson stayed to the bitter end. And according to Don Redding, another Westlake resident who attended the presentation, they were all mad as hell about what Perot and the Hillwood Corporation wanted to do. In essence, we would have turned over the community to the developer. In other words, that was the tone of it is, all right, I'll take it from here. You know, you people have been in, in charge or, or run the town up to this point, but from now on, I'll be able to, I'll, we'll take care of it. We'll make your decisions for you. And that was the whole tone of it. And people didn't like that. No, they didn't care for that too much. Now, at the time Ross Jr. brought his plans for development of the Circle T to the citizens of Westlake, the town was run by six men, the mayor, Scott Bradley, and five aldermen. Mayor Bradley was a soft-spoken but very successful lawyer with a reputation for staking out the ethical high ground. Meticulous, detail-oriented, Scott liked to stand at city council meetings. Three different people told me that, that Scott Bradley liked to stand at city council meetings. I think the reason they mention it is because the formality of that act, standing up, stood in such sharp contrast to the rest of the city government. The other people on the city council, the aldermen, were not formal people. Al Oyen was a retired airplane pilot who wore his overalls to meetings. Fred Held was a third-generation hardware man. There was Carol Huntress, a former assistant football coach who later got into oil exploration, and Howard Dudley, who was in the chemical business, and Jerry Moore, who owned a tiling carpet company. I should mention here that being an alderman in Westlake, Texas, was not what you would call a full-time job. For years, the city council meetings were held in the aldermen's living rooms. Even when the city government moved into an official town hall in the early 90s, the meetings retained their living room feeling. It was comfortable. It was casual. There was not, in truth, all that much to discuss. Now, in light of later events, it's important to be clear on one point. At the time of the Perot presentation, all five of Westlake's aldermen were opposed to the Perot development plan. Then something happened, and this consensus came to an end. Ross Jr. made another land purchase in the town of Westlake, 500 acres of Texas prairie on which one of the aldermen, a man named Carol Huntress, rented a home. It was after this land purchase that suddenly and inexplicably, four of the five aldermen, Al Oyen, Jerry Moore, Howard Dudley, and Perot's new tenant, Carol Huntress, started questioning the town's traditional anti-growth stance. There were a series of uncomfortable town meetings where the four aldermen publicly challenged the mayor, and some statements were made to the local press. Miles Moffat is a reporter for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram who covered what became the Westlake story. Perot purchased the land Huntress lived on, and almost within weeks... Huntress and these other aldermen were uh, releasing signals that, you know, they, they were kind of tired of the uh, the fighting, that they were, it was time for the town to, you know, come around to Perot's views. You know, I got an interview with him, and he began explaining that uh, Perot basically can't lose, and Perot is going to have his way eventually anyway, so the town should come around and, you know, just start... Uh, appeasing him. This turn was hard to explain. These men, after all, had helped to build the town. 
For years, they turned away developers with plans much more modest than Perot's. Why would they reverse their decades-long anti-growth stance in a matter of weeks? Rumors circulated around town. Theories about payoffs, none of which could be substantiated, none of which satisfied. Meanwhile, Mayor Bradley refused to support the Perot plan, and relations between the four aldermen and the mayor became strained and then positively hostile. There was a fight over where the town boundaries fell, in which each side accused the other of manipulation and deception. There was an ugly incident between one of the aldermen's wives and some townspeople, and the general sense that things were quickly falling apart. David Brown. There was a great deal of acrimony uh, between the citizens and the council, and between Bradley and the council. And the citizens, it was even harsher than Bradley. I mean, we, we, people were calling these, these guys all kinds of names. Who do you work for? Uh, you know, who's paying your salary? Who have you sold out to? This sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, was, it was pretty hot. Reporter Miles Moffat. From that point on, it was just pure bedlam. I mean, these guys were calling their own meetings. Scott was vetoing every action that they took. It went back and forth and back and forth for, for weeks until um, the, these, these former aldermen decided to just put him on trial and remove him from office. They announced they were going to impeach Mr. Bradley, and uh, I, for one, thought it was a bluff. I didn't think they, I don't, you know, uh, the, legal justi- the legal basis for it was a law passed back in the 1870s that had only been used once or twice and never since the early 1900s, and I thought, they'll, you know, they'll be laughed out of court. Uh, yeah, it was, it's like a hundred-year-old statute, and it, it says that a uh, small-town board of aldermen can uh, convene a trial, act as judge, jury, and witness, and remove a colleague from office, be it a, a mayor or a fellow alderman. There are four counts brought against the mayor, two of them so inconsequential that neither the accused mayor nor the prosecuting alderman can remember what they were. One count charged the mayor with removing a meeting notice, which had been posted on the town hall door. The only substantive charge accused him of tricking the alderman into endorsing a map which expanded the town's boundaries. But most Westlake residents believed that the alderman wanted to impeach Mayor Bradley for a different reason. The mayor was the most outspoken and intractable opponent of the Perot plan. As mayor with veto power, it would be impossible for Perot and his company, the Hillwood Corporation, to proceed with development with Bradley standing in the way. When the issue was raised in the local press, Perot denied influencing the alderman in any way. But a series of actions taken by the alderman only compounded this view. David Brown. The next thing they did, they fired the city attorney, who'd been city attorney for 20 or 25 years. They fired the town planner, and they said, we've made a deal with Hillwood that we're going to use their lawyer and their town planner. Well, <laughs> you know, the town, the town will get their services for free, and Hillwood will pay for it all. And uh, the new law firm came in, the new lawyer from a law firm up in Denton came in, and he immediately began to orchestrate uh, Bradley's trial. David Brown presented the alderman with a petition signed by 125 Westlake residents, half the town's population, which condemned their move to oust Mayor Bradley. As the alderman's lawyers prepared to put the mayor on trial, Scott Bradley and his supporters began to meet regularly to strategize about how to counteract the actions of the alderman. They would gather in their own homes in their living rooms or private offices, 
And as they did this, they started noticing a strange thing was happening. This is Don Redding. All I can tell you is uh, in meetings that were held where there might be three or four or five people in attendance, that I was quoted from that meeting the next day from somebody that had no way of knowing what went on in the exact words and the, in the exact sequence that were made in that meeting. Ruby Held, wife of Alderman Fred Held, the only alderman who continued to support Mayor Bradley. Whatever we planned, they beat us to whatever we planned. So we knew we were being watched, we were being listened to. Somehow they were monitoring our phone calls. This is Mayor Scott Bradley. Well, we all started, uh, number one, nobody would talk on a hard telephone. Um, we would go to other telephones to talk, or we would talk on the uh, digital cell phones. Uh, I myself would take my digital phone out by the fountain. Reporter Miles Moffat. They held secret meetings out in the woods, and they, they would pass around notes, and you know they, they couldn't carry on a conversation with the, the blinds open. Don Redding. Uh, we even uh, drive as far as a quarter of a mile away from my home and meet with them on the side of a road. Did that on several occasions. And this is really interesting when you understand that in the early 70s, I worked in the Soviet Union for IBM, and that was one of the most closed societies in the world. The KGB was with us always. And I frankly felt more threatened here than I did when I worked in the Soviet Union. You felt more threatened here than you did. You felt like you were being watched more. Absolutely. No question about it in my mind. And you can call that as paranoid, but it's only paranoid when it's not happening. And in this case, I was convinced it was. Ruby Held was out in her yard one day. She was bird watching, she says, to calm her nerves. She was tracking a bird with her binoculars. It flew across the street, and as she turned to follow it, she noticed there was a van driving slowly back and forth in front of her home. The van had two people in it, and they too had binoculars. They were looking right back at her. Miles Moffat. Uh, well, she got the tag number, and we, we ran a check and, and discovered that this, this van belonged to a private investigation service in Irving, and uh, their names were Jerry and Cherry Davis. Um, I, I got on the phone with one of the detectives, and, and he acknowledged having worked for a pro's law firm at one point, and then uh, you know, cut the conversation really short. Uh, so the depositions later on reflect that there were indeed investigators hired to track Bradley, but it, it, it's just real difficult to tell who hired them. Perot denies hiring private detectives to track his opponents in Westlake. He and his development company, the Hillwood Corporation, declined to be interviewed for this story. But Miles Moffat, who has covered Perot Jr.'s business dealings, both inside and outside Westlake for a number of years, says the notion that Perot would have his opponents tailed is not completely outlandish. Perot's, the, the way he goes about his business is generally very stealthy, and he he acknowledges that to him uh, business is war and in order to understand his this perspective you have to understand that uh, stealth and aggressiveness are just two very important factors in, in going to war you know a town of 250 people uh, just had a very difficult time keeping up 
Then there was another thing which fanned the flames of the town's fear of Ross Perot Jr., a book called Citizen Perot, written by journalist Gerald Posner. Now, this book is not about Ross Perot Jr. It's about his father, the former presidential candidate. It's an unauthorized biography, which includes a chapter called I'm Not an Investigative Personality, about Ross Sr.'s now-famous obsession with security and his use of private investigators and security teams in his business dealings. Ruby held. There was some chapters. I went for three weeks. I couldn't even read between... I couldn't pick it up again. It was. I thought, I can't believe what this man has done. And because I think I had read that book, it gave us... Something would come up in city council, or they'd come in, and everything they did was... Um, I'd say that's chapter six, or this is chapter two. Every single home I visited in Westlake had a copy of Citizen Perot. Well-worn, full of underlining and scribbled notes in the margins, whole passages outlined in yellow highlight. The more they read, the more worried and hysterical they became. It is in this climate of paranoia that the alderman put Mayor Scott Bradley on trial. It was held on a Tuesday in the cafeteria of the Solana office complex, which housed the town hall. The mayor's supporters plastered the walls with posters of the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution. David Brown. I guess the whole town was there, plus maybe two or three hundred other people. It was a big crowd came out, even though it was like 10 o'clock on a weekday. And uh, Mr. Huntress was chairman of the, of the court. The, the town council, the aldermen, sat as the court, uh, all five of them. Uh, even though they had brought the charges, and then even though one or two of them testified against Bradley at the trial, they were still uh, allowed to vote as judges. Miles Moffat. The aldermen had set themselves up along this long uh, table, and in the, the middle was uh, an attorney named Bill Wood who uh, uh, had done some work for Perot. Don Redding. And uh, it was kind of curious because when something would be posed that Huntress didn't know how to handle, which was most of it, he would look to this attorney, and the attorney would try to advise him, which is, it was such a ludicrous thing, and it was a, such a staged thing, that there was no question about what was going to happen. Ruby held. I'm sitting there thinking, I must be in Russia. I cannot believe they're sitting up and testifying against him and judging him and being the jury, the jury all in one swoop. I thought this must be the way they railroad somebody in Russia and put them in prison because this is the biggest trumped up farce I've ever seen in my whole life. My whole insides felt like they were boiling. After a 15-minute break for deliberation, the board, in a four-to-one vote, with Fred Held dissenting, found Scott Bradley guilty as charged and dismissed him as mayor of the city of Westlake. The crowd booed. Scott Bradley. When the verdict was read, my lawyer stood up and said, um, is that your verdict? And they said, yes, it is. And he said, when do you, are you going to put it into effect? And they said, right now. My lawyer says, right now? And Carol Huntress said, right now. And proceeded to sign the papers that Bill Wood furnished him. And uh, I, I can't remember exactly how it happened, but there was a 
sort of a defining moment where it was just a spontaneous applause essentially aimed at my lawyer and me for having gone through this terrible situation. And I was so moved that I stood up and I applauded the audience for having borne through this whole thing. Immediately after the trial, Bradley got in a car and drove to the district courthouse to file an appeal. But en route, he got a call on his cell phone. It was from one of the townspeople, a woman staked out at the town hall, who told Bradley that the alderman had posted another notice, which announced yet another meeting. Scott Bradley. She had copied enough of it that she was able to read, read it to us, and it became very apparent then what was happening. They were going to blow the town up. The Alderman's Notice, posted three hours after the impeachment of Mayor Scott Bradley, proposed the disannexation of 90% of the town of Westlake. 90% of the city's property would be transferred to neighboring communities and the town would essentially be disbanded, simply given away. Included in the disannexation ordinance were all lands belonging to Ross Perot Jr. and the three properties owned by the Alderman. Reporter Miles Moffat. Everybody was like, okay, they're just going to blow up the town. (laughs) On paper, it would look as though the town was blown up. I mean, there were just pieces, um, far-flung pieces attached by very thin strips of land. Word of the posting spread quickly, and within half an hour, a small army of citizens had gathered at the town hall, most too stunned to absorb what was happening. The properties belonging to the Alderman and Perot were eventually released to the city of Fort Worth in exchange for a promise that they would pay no property taxes for a minimum of 15 years. Here's David Brown, Don Redding, and Scott Bradley. I I was incredulous. I said, they can't be doing this. This is not sane. You had no idea that anybody would have even considered something like this. I mean, it's like, this is unbelievable. I mean, it's really, you're just, you're astounded. I I really couldn't make sense of it. It uh, I wasn't there, but it had to be very much akin to the feeling of people observing the Oklahoma City bombing. It was a senseless act. It brought only harm and devastation. And this is the same feeling I had, that it just seemed to be the work of madmen. Coming up, are madmen actually smarter than the rest of us? Are people with money? Or do they just plan things out better? Elise Spiegel's story from Westlake, Texas continues in a minute for Public Radio International when our program continues.
This is American Life from Ira Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose some theme, bring you various stories on that theme. Today's program for the July 4th holiday, stories of idealists in American government two centuries after the first Independence Day. And answers to this question, can you fight City Hall if you are City Hall? We're in the middle of Elise Spiegel's story from Westlake, Texas. The mayor has been thrown out of office. A notice is posted calling for a meeting in which the town would give away most of its land to other towns. At this point, Mayor Scott Bradley went to district court to have them issue an order so his impeachment would not take effect right away. At the district court, the judge suspended a murder trial for an entire day to issue a ruling favorable to Mayor Bradley, a temporary restraining order which prevented the alderman from enforcing Bradley's impeachment. The alderman's lawyers were also present, and they indicated to the district judge that they wanted to appeal his decision to the Fort Worth Court of Appeals in the morning. Mayor Scott Bradley. Judge says, fine, I'll order my clerks to stay here, prepare the record. You can come by to, I think he said a quarter of eight, and pick it up. So as far as we knew, we were going to the Court of Appeals the next morning. That night, Carol Huntress and these lawyers get into a car. They drive to one of the justices' homes. They sit in his living room while he talks to two other justices and comes out and announces that he's going to stay the orders of the district court. And so, in a late-night hearing in a judge's living room, the impeachment of Scott Bradley was reinstated. David Brown. It happened very quickly. I mean, the the district court order came out about 5 o'clock, and by 11 o'clock that night it had been overturned by the Court of Appeals. Uh, Again, this made us feel... We are really up against it. If, if people have that much clout, they can go to an appeals court in the middle of the night. I mean, I could not, if I were a, a, a private citizen and I wanted to get a district court order overturned, I could not go knock on an ju- appeals court judge's door at 9 o'clock at night and said, would you please overturn this decision? I know you haven't had time to hear the opponent's side to it, but please overturn it anyway. You know, I couldn't do that. I doubt anybody in the state could. Well, very few people. Obviously, somebody could because they did. Scott Bradley appealed to the Texas Supreme Court, saying the Court of Appeals was wrong to make this decision in the middle of the night without hearing his side of the case. And as other lawsuits involving Westlake worked their way to the Court of Appeals, Mayor Bradley filed another motion. This one said that the Court of Appeals judges shouldn't be hearing another case involving him, given how they'd handled the impeachment decision and given the fact that he was arguing to the Supreme Court that they had acted improperly. This so infuriated the court that they, again, without inviting me to be present or giving me any notice they were doing so, convened the entire Fort Worth Court of Appeals and issued a 21-page opinion in which they essentially call my lawyer, actually my lawyer's liars, and unfit for the practice of law for filing this motion and referred them to the general counsel of the State Bar of Texas to have their license removed. And uh, it had personal repercussions for me because immediately Kenny and Hanger, the law firm I was working for, called me in and they said, we have this $204 million judgment that we're afraid that this same panel that you've said may be biased is going to decide our appeal unfavorably in retribution, so we want you to resign from the law firm. 
And that's how Scott Bradley lost his job. Publicly, Perot continued to deny any involvement in the disintegration of Westlake and portrayed the affair as a local power struggle, a personality conflict between Scott Bradley and the Board of Aldermen. Three days after the impeachment, on Friday, May 2nd, one evening before the town elections were scheduled, town elections which could change the balance of power on the board, the citizens of Westlake once again gathered in town hall, this time to witness the dismantling of their community. With Bradley removed from office, there was no mayor to preside. So prior to the meeting, the aldermen appointed their own mayor, one of the oldest citizens in town. Again, reporter Miles Moffat. Uh, his name was Dale White, and he's almost like a hermit. You know, you just you didn't see him around town, but suddenly here he was, the mayor of Westlake. Once again, the aldermen took their place at the table in the front of the room. The meeting was, by all accounts, a very efficient, no-frills process. Most of the actual legal documentation for the disannexations were provided by a lawyer who was working with Perot and the Hillwood Corporation. The aldermen and the new mayor, Dale White, said very little. Much of what they did say, they read from index cards, which had been prepared in advance. Don Redding. Through the whole thing, people are trying to object, trying to get them to listen to them, and, and they're, they're, it's like you might as well not have been in the room. They won't look at you. They won't look at you. They won't look at you? No. Scott Bradley. It was probably the lowest point emotionally in my life, sitting through that meeting, watching these aldermen and uh, they literally dismantled the town in about a two-and-a-half-hour period using documents that Perot's lawyers had prepared. When the last paper was signed and the town of Westlake officially dismantled, the newly appointed mayor, Dale White, mayor of a town that now did not include the property where he himself lived, in other words, mayor of a town in which he did not hold residence, sat at the table in the front of the room and made the statement which would appear in every newspaper article which covered the story. Scott Bradley. Uh, there were some maps displayed and several citizens gathered around Dale, upset, and were asking him, well, is this tracked in or is this tracked out? Is my property in or is it out? And somebody said, what do you call this now? And it seemed like without thinking, he said, Perotown. It was in response to somebody's comment, mm -hmm. and he said, this is Perotville now. And uh, people looked very shocked at him, and he realized that he had made a very unpolitical statement. Mm -hmm. And you could see by his actions that he thought, oh, man, I've screwed this up to a very well. David Brown. I went to bed that night thinking, man, we've, the town's destroyed. And the next morning at 6 a.m. on Saturday morning, the Fort Worth City Council meets uh, an emergency session and, and claims all the land that had been disannexed from <laughs> Westlake. <laughs> now, you don't get the Fort Worth City Council out of bed at 6 o'clock on a Saturday morning unless you have some, some clout. And, uh, yeah, we were, we were mad, we were confused, and we were afraid we might have lost the whole ballgame at that point. 
The Ottoman, naturally, have a very different version of these events, a version they shared with me in a hotel conference room several miles outside of Westlake. It was the first time they'd collected to speak publicly about what had happened, and they insisted that they all be interviewed together. According to the Ottoman, they are the true victims of this story, people unjustly accused of selling out the town when, in fact, they were simply trying to protect Westlake from a corrupt and power-hungry mayor, someone so narrow-minded and fanatical about preserving the rural integrity of his community that he rejected a proposal which was in step with the overall goals of Westlake and its citizens. Former Alderman Al Oyen. Our attitude, everyone except one alderman and this phony mayor we had, said, it's going to change. The best we can hope for is a reasonable change, some input into the change, rather than let them go crazy. And Perot's proposition was magnificent. We were really fortunate to have someone with integrity that would develop a town in a reasonable manner rather than just go in and destroy the thing like most towns develop. They say they took no bribes from Perot, were never in any way influenced by Perot, but reached their decision to impeach Mayor Bradley after it became clear that he would do anything, including impeding the legal workings of the board, to stop a legitimate businessman with legitimate rights from developing a property which was his own. They described in great detail a series of small battles between themselves and the mayor, which led to their decision to impeach him. And listening to them, it does seem possible that what happened in Westlake is that there were some relatively modest misunderstandings and disagreements between the council and Bradley, problems they might have ironed out in normal times. But with the question of Perot's development plan hanging over their heads, these disputes simply spiraled out of control as each side dug in its heels. The aldermen had run the town for years, and they weren't used to anyone disagreeing with them so persistently and effectively. It was no wonder they came to hate Bradley. As for the disannexation of Westlake's land, the aldermen say the hostility from Westlake citizens was so great after the trial, they simply felt they had no alternative. They had an opportunity to release themselves from a bad situation, to release the Perot property from unreasonable governance, and they took it. But they don't agree that it was their fault that Westlake was destroyed. Alderman Carol Huntress. In essence, they've destroyed the town when they, uh, when they more or less changed uh, allegiances and, and had no concern for us whatsoever. They, they did after the trial. They, scorned at you and made harsh remarks at you and treat you like uh, uh, like dogs, really. Whatever the aldermen's motivations, the people of Westlake clearly disapproved of their actions. The aldermen had scheduled the disannexation meeting for one night before the regular town elections, presumably because they understood that after the impeachment trial, there was very little chance they would continue in office. They were right. Of the two aldermen eligible for re-election, one withdrew from the race, the other was turned out of office in a landslide vote. Initially, the anti-Perot forces assumed the election, which gave them a majority voting bloc on the board of aldermen, would end the political troubles in Westlake. But two days after the election, the old Board of Aldermen posted yet another notice. 
This one stating that according to their interpretation of Texas election law, the new council was prohibited from assuming office for an additional five business days. During that time, the old board held a series of meetings in which they confirmed the property disannexations, passed an indemnity ordinance to protect themselves from any litigation relating to town matters, and as a final act, disannexed the property which housed town hall. Meanwhile, Bradley, who refused to recognize the validity of his ouster, met regularly with the new board and systematically reversed every action taken by the old board. David Brown. We had the old board of aldermen refusing to give up their seats and the new board of aldermen meeting separately and claiming they, they were the legal board. Uh, we had Mayor Bradley claiming he'd been removed from office illegally and therefore he was still the legal mayor. And we had the old council and Dale White claiming that Dale White was mayor because he'd been appointed by the council to replace Mr. Bradley. So anyway, we had two mayors, two councils, uh, and, and a town that effectively had been destroyed. And it was a, it was a mess right at that point. Two mayors, two boards, and all for a town which technically didn't exist. Naturally, it got worse. Alderman Carol Huntress, who didn't have the legal authority to sign city checks greater than $1,000, used a loophole in city policy and wrote 67 $1,000 checks to pay off the legal bills associated with the mayor's impeachment, forcing the town to freeze its bank accounts and declare temporary bankruptcy. Dale White, who continued to claim that he was the rightful mayor of Westlake, changed the locks in the city hall to keep Bradley and his supporters out. And Bradley, who also continued to claim that he was the rightful mayor of Westlake, changed the locks back. In the end, the question of whether or not Westlake would continue to exist was settled in a way that no one could have ever predicted. In the summer of 1998, Rumors started circulating around town that a Fortune 500 company was interested in buying a portion of Perot's land in Westlake. They wanted to build a corporate campus and were willing to pay big, but only if certain conditions were met. The company wanted the dispute between Perot and the town resolved. They didn't want the land they bought to fall within the jurisdiction of the city of Fort Worth, one of the land dispute cases then in front of the courts. And there was one other thing. The land they were most interested in buying merged with Mayor Scott Bradley's property. And they wouldn't buy any land unless Bradley also agreed to sell. Perot badly wanted the money. And this put Bradley in the curious position of being able to dictate to his former enemy the terms of the town's restoration. He did. In December of 1998, 314 acres of ranch land was sold to the Fidelity Corporation, and in exchange, Perot abandoned all legal action against the town of Westlake. The town was restored. After two years of struggle, Westlake was saved by the very thing its citizens were trying to avoid in the first place, development. This did not diminish in any way the sweetness of the Supreme Court ruling which reinstated Scott Bradley as mayor, which was delivered to Scott by his state representative, Vicki Truitt, on April 9, 1999. They had declared that I was and still am the mayor of the town of Westlake. And, I mean, it was just total screaming. Vicki was screaming and crying. We were screaming and crying. And then the news just spread like wildfire. I mean, the news must have been around the town in a half an hour.
I think as, as Americans, there are a lot of people out there that have assumed that money and power will carry the day, that uh, our experience teaches us that most of the times money and power does win, and therefore there's more of a resignation to that fact and a willingness to to succumb because we know or we think that's going to be the ultimate result anyway. And I think it's almost shocking to us when we find out that if people will stand up and if you will fight for what I keep calling the right thing, that ultimately it can win out even over money and power. The people of Westlake had always assumed that the aldermen had sold the town out to Perot for money. But in the end, there's no evidence to support this theory. Only one of the aldermen, Jerry Moore, sold his property to Perot directly for a price reasonably within market range, and no other evidence of quid pro quo has surfaced. In the meantime, almost all of the aldermen have moved away from Westlake. They say it's just too hard after all that's happened, and the town has changed. Al Oyen is the only one who continues to own property in town, but says he mostly keeps to himself. After two years, the people of Westlake had their town back. And though many seem to believe, with Scott Bradley, that the moral of this story is very clear, that right will, in the end, trump might, that money doesn't always win, a funny thing happened on the way to victory. The people of Westlake seemed to lose sight of their original goal of keeping the town rural. Talk to Don or Ruby or David or Scott today, and they will speak enthusiastically about the new Fidelity campus. They even seem reconciled to the idea of more building. People now accept that there is development, that there will be more development. And in this sense, Perot may have lost the battle, but has managed to lay the groundwork to win the war. Before I left Westlake, I went to visit Perot's company, the Hillwood Corporation. They wouldn't speak about the past, but they were happy to talk about the future. David Pelletier, a spokesman for the company, brought out a big color-coded map and showed me their plans. We've already sold this property to Texas Health Systems for a hospital campus. That's already been approved by the town. This right here, we, um, uh, we were working with General Growth Properties, one of the largest mall developers and mall management companies in the country, uh, to come in. And uh, it's going to be a, uh, a high-level, upscale shopping resort. He pointed out the industrial office complex, the luxury hotel, multifamily housing projects, and finally, the Texas town that Hillwood had first proposed back in 1996. They're still planning to build it. Construction will soon be underway. Elise Spiegel, she produced her story with funding from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Well, I came up to Dallas with a bright light on my mind. But I came up to Dallas with a dollar and a dime. Well, Dallas is a rich man with a death wish 
Well, our program was produced today by Julie Snyder and myself with Alex Bloomberg, Susan Burton, and Blue Chevney. Contributing editors Paul Toff, Jack Hitt, Margie Rock, and Elise Spiegel, Nancy Updike, and Consigliere Saraval. Production album from Todd Bachman and Mary Wiltenberg. Special thanks today to reporter Miles Moffat, to Lewis Clark of the Government, Account- Government Accountability Project, Steve Cohn of the National Whistleblowing Center, Tom Snyder of the Vetter Price Law Firm here in Chicago, and John and Marissa Bow, to all the authors of the book Gig. To buy a cassette of this program, call us here at WBEZ in Chicago, 312-832-3380. You know, you can listen to our programs for free on the Internet at our website, www.thislife.org. Thanks to Elizabeth Meister, who runs the site. Thanks to Joanne, Dale, and Rob of the Cola Mail System for hosting our weekly email listserv news update. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Funding for our show has been provided by Amazon.com, helping you find your next favorite book with over 13 million titles online at Amazon.com. Other funding comes from the Capital Group Companies, investing for individuals and institutions throughout the world, and sponsor of the American Funds Group of Mutual Funds, and from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Albert A. List Foundation, and the listeners of WBEZ Chicago, WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia, who declares after every episode of our program, I can't believe what this man has done. I'm sitting there thinking I must be in Russia. I'm Ira Glass, back next week with more stories of this American life. Public Radio International.